Hello and welcome to another magical stream. I am your host, Joe Magician, and today we're going to be doing, you know, some more extreme nerdery on a relatively minor topic and talk about it way more than it probably deserves, but that's kind of on brand at this point for my channel. And today, specifically, we're going to be talking about the stars or the, I guess, the villains of the upcoming House of the Dragon TV show, House Hightower. But most, but mostly like the rest of the family up until those two, like, who are they? Why should we care about them? How is George using them throughout his histories and the world of ice and fire and background information to sort of let you in on what they're going to do ahead of time by studying their past. It's a very common tactic for him. He uses the past of families and their myths and legends and stuff like that to basically give you sort of an outline for what to expect from them as people. And that's more or less what's going on with the high towers. It, it's kind of funny how much what Otto and Allison do in house of the dragon or in fire and blood is basically what their ancestors have done for generations. It is, they're not, they're not abnormal in their behavior. Just maybe the scope of their greed, I guess. And it'll be a lot of fun because the high towers do have a long storied history. <laughs> Although I think it would be, they're one of those houses that I think has a lot of, a lot of fans, but for, if they were more active in a song of ice and fire, I think they would probably lose them for, just for the way they tend to behave and the way they tend to manipulate the rest of Westeros. But anyway, yeah, we're going to go ahead and talk about the high towers, the high towers in particular. We'll, we'll touch a little bit on old town. We'll talk about the Citadel, obviously oily black stone and battle Isle and all that stuff. We got the whole slate ready to go today. Before we get going, just want to say thank you to a couple new patrons. Chris B. Oh, wait a second. He told me the right name for this. One second. I'm looking this up. Yeah, Chris B. The Song of Ice and Fire. And also Arian and... Well, I want to make sure I got this name right. Menhit Shihu Massacres. Oh, that's three of them. So thank you guys for signing up. Also want to say thank you to Morley, who before the stream started, of course, threw us a fat stack of $50 for and compliments my haircut. So thank you very much, Morley. Oh, and also a super chat here from Trippy Fox, 10 pounds. Thanks for another great stream, Joe. You're welcome. Tywin has a backstory involving his dad and siblings. Explain his character and motives. We see an equivalent backstory for Otto Hightower. A very good question and very likely. He is so clearly supposed to remind you of Tywin that even if they don't show it directly, you can probably graft one character's history onto each other. Like not... Not one for one, but you can kind of imagine that there's enough similarities there that you can you can parse them out, even if it's only in brief spurts or if it's sort of what's the right word for it? If it's mentioned but not elaborated on. Did I get any PayPal's? I don't think so. Nope, got none of those. But thank you for the super chats, you guys. Yes, smash the like button, share if you enjoy it, subscribe. As usual, I still have free T-shirts to give away, so. We have 26 likes, so if we get up to 75 likes, we'll go ahead and somebody can grab a free shirt from my Threadless shop. I am actually not wearing one today. I'm sorry, guys. I'm a bad advertiser for my own stuff. Make sure you're... But mostly, if you enjoy it, do those things, just because they help people find the channel, and it's a good time. Who doesn't like smashing a like button? I know I do. Let's see here. Guilty Country Kicker says, The high towers are better than normal, they're abnormal. In, in a way, I find their personal history really fascinating. After doing a lot of reading over the last few days about it, I'm like, oh, George put a lot more effort into the High Towers than I think people realize, and not in a spooky, mystical way. 
yeah, so we got the opening quote here from the World of Ice and Fire, because this is where most of the information about the High Towers comes from. They get their own chapter in the World of Ice and Fire, while chapters may be saying it a little grandiose. Chapters in, a, in the World of Ice and Fire sometimes last like a page, maybe two, but this is where most of the information about them comes from. And it says, how old is Old Town truly? Many a maester has pondered that question, but we simply do not know. The origins of the city are lost in the mists of time and clouded by legend. Sub, some ignorant septons claims the seven themselves laid out its boundaries. Other men that dragons once roosted on Battle Isle until the first high tower put an end to them. Yeah. Many small folk believe the high tower itself simply appeared one day. The true and full history of the founding of Old Town will likely never be known. Boy, that is an intro from George. He's like, it's really, really spooky. It's mysterious. Here's four different theories on how it started. I'm going to give you like three more. Which one's true? I don't know, because I'm George R. R. Martin, and, I, and I'm deciding to play with my reader's emotions and make it very unclear what's happening with one of his more important but not not celebrated houses in A Song of Ice and Fire. Let's see. The High Towers also have the long... Long-ranging bitterness or several of being one of the oldest families of Westeros, perhaps even related to Proto-Valins, if theories are correct. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Proto-Valins and all that stuff. I have a very different idea about them. So, as we said in the, the opening quote, their ancient history is disputed, lost to history, conflicting. There's a lot of weird stories about them. And it's almost like, it's almost like, somebody is deliberately making it unclear where the high towers came from and i don't mean george r. r martin it's very interesting most houses have a pretty clear origin story especially ones as old as the high towers they have like one story of how it started they have one legendary figure they did a cool thing they started from there and then things just kind of move forward and generally some kind of story of where they came from like if you look at the starks Brandon the Builder built Winterfell. He came from Brandon of the Bloody Blade, who came from Garth. Okay, that that's pretty straightforward. Where the Durandans come from? They come from Durand Durandin, who somehow magical in some way, some sort of magical blood, whatever. The Gardeners, they're all related to Garth Greenhand from his eldest son, Garth the Gardener, or et cetera, et cetera. The High Towers are kind of like that that little thing I just mentioned about how like the High Tower may have just simply appeared one day and that was kind of it. They're a little bit like that. In particular with the High Towers, George gives us a real grab bag of possibilities and just sort of challenges you to say, where's the truth in these? Which pieces of evidence are the most important? Which ones tell the most truth? Or is it like a mixture of all of them? And it's the second one. It's a mixture of all of them. There's little grains of truth in each one of these stories that I think if you piece together, you can find the full history of the High Towers just sort of in that one chapter in the World of Ice and Fire. So we learned from the World of Ice and Fire that the mouth of the Honeywine River, which is what Old Town sits on, had been occupied many times before the current House High Tower had made their home there. And it's not really that uncommon for that kind of thing to happen. It's a river mouth. It's on fertile land. It's on sort of a peninsula, has a lot of islands. This is a natural place for human civilizations to pop up. It has a lot of the things you want. You get protection, you get trade if you want it, fishing, easy travel via boat out into the ocean or up and down the river. You can tax trade that comes up and down there. It's a good spot. And there's a lot of places in human history that, uh, that are like that, where one place gets wiped out, someone else moves in 
and the cycle just sort of keeps repeating because, you know, it's kind of like if you ever play Civilization, Sid Meier's game, there's generally a good, if there's one good spot, it's a good spot for anybody. And that's the same thing here. And it's one of those things that kind of makes it seem a little bit more magical and mystical than it is like maybe there's something special about the honey wine river maybe it's the battle isle or maybe there's like a great font of magic there it's like no it's just it's good geography it's good geography for civilization and that's kind of what you get what you get from a lot of the early stories about them why why did many people live there because it's a good spot to live people tend to they like living in valleys they like living at the mouths of rivers this kind of thing happens over and over again. Yeah, Guilty Undertaker makes a good point in the chat. When they found the ruins of Troy, they found it was destroyed and rebuilt, rebuilt nine times. Same idea. A good spot is a good spot is a good spot, no matter who lives there, no matter how long the time scale is. So that's kind of, it goes into that in the role of Ice and Fire, and it makes the point that like people lived here before. They lived there before the high towers, and not even before we get to the 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 oily black stone whatever fortress yeah people live there they even before the first men and there's also kind of a reason for it and it's one that george alludes to in other places and it's that that the spot of the old town itself where it's built on on the mouth of the honey wine has a few things in common with other powerful and well-respected places in the song of ice and fire for instance old town is not built on one landmass it's a whole bunch of islands that they built defensive fortifications and bridges in between. And then upriver is where a lot of the city growth has been. Like that's where the starry, the starry sept is and like where the city has expanded over time. But it's the use of these islands, kind of like the shield islands that has made it of somewhere that they could defend, at least from the sea pretty effectively. And that's very similar to Bravos. Bravos is the same way. It's a, it's a lagoon of a thousand islands all linked by different bridges and it became a basically a world power by using those islands to build themselves a navy and be able to defend themselves from the sea that's kind of how it works it's far close yeah and it's not very much like the other big cities in westeros it's not really anything like king's landing it's not really like white harbor or well it's it, there's a little bit of king's landing in which there is a, a few islands out more out into Blackwater Bay, but not directly around it. Those aren't part of the city proper. So George is kind of allowing you to compare the two of them. That like, oh, Bravos is like Old Town. They're they're kind of cut from the same cloth. That's kind of interesting. And also, yeah, the, the larger structures, the later construction came further up river. And that has to do with their history and stuff like that. So looking at the big question about Old Town and the High Towers and the High Tower itself is who were the first people to build there? Okay, so I mentioned some of them in the opening quotes. People in the chat are talking about different ones. I'm just going to go through the different possibilities laid out in the world of Ice and Fire, because, again, this is where it all comes from. There's a suggestion that there, it was initially colonized by Valyrians, or if not them, some kind of like proto-pre-Valyrian civilization. There is some similarity between the Valyrian construction style and what you see on Battle Isle itself. And just quickly to go over this, why do I keep mentioning this? Underneath the high tower itself, underneath the big lighthouse tower, History of Westeros talked about Lorath last week. I'm sure they did. They are good about finding good stuff. The fused black stone. Okay, so 
old the battle isle is an ancient fortress built on an island made of fused black stone fortress the quote goes the fused black stone of which it is made suggests Illyria, but the plain unadorned style of the architecture does not for the dragon lords loved little more than twisting stone into strange fanciful and ornate shapes so it's kind of just a bunch of walls it also has narrow twisting windowless passages strike many as being tunnels rather than halls and it's basically a big maze so this has the initial thing is that it sounds like valerian it sounds like what they used to build everything but then the construction sounds more like the maze makers and lorath which are another whole big topic and there's also suggestions based on the construction material that maybe this was like something that has to do with the great empire of the dawn or one of its after it fell maybe one of maybe it was like in a west a western roman empire an eastern roman empire thing like, who knows the, the whole thing is a big old big old mess of myths and legends and trying to find the truth is i don't even know if george knows it i think he just likes throwing out possibilities but anyway so when you get this fused stone maze fortress on battle isle the other suggestion is that it's noted that a lot of the high towers tend to have blonde and silvery hair and this makes the connection that maybe the entire family itself is related to one of these ancient elf-like civilizations that george likes writing about are we talking about an early valyria a proto valyria whoever the valyrians came from that kind of thing so i'm gonna go ahead and say i don't know who built battle isle george is sort of throwing out a lot of possibilities i don't know which one is true but what's clear is that the high towers didn't build it he goes on after he talks about battle isle that it was just kind of always there and the the ancestors of the high towers kind of just took it over they were like this is a pretty good fortified location this is a good spot to build looks like people used to live here we're just gonna go ahead and move in so it's i don't know who built it but not the high towers the high towers kind of just found it that's more or less the 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 start and the end of that there's also a suggestion within the world of ice and fire chapter that maybe it had to do with the old ones or the deep ones a maester theon from the iron islands makes the comparison between the sea stone chair and battle isle and suggests that maybe they're one and the same maybe the sea stone chair the royal throne of the iron islands came from somehow came from battle isle and wound its way up on a beach and the the ironborn just kind of went like oh neat and decided it was our this is a lot of actually michael hall in the chat says this is this is very Lovecraftian what he's talking about here. Interesting suggestion there that George is essentially making a connection between Old Town and the Ironborn. Curious, that one's going to come up quite a bit. Obviously, then the Lor Lorath and the Maze Makers come up, as I was talking about from that quote. It's a whole bunch of weird passages in the ground, and people that have seen Lorath and Battle Isle go, yeah, these are pretty similar. So it's quite possible that... It was some sort of outpost of whoever these maze makers were. Again, George has like 10,000 ancient empires that have risen and fallen. Don't really know which one, but it seems likely that whoever made the mazes, the maze makers, and whoever made Battle Isle are probably one and the same. But again, important point, these are not the high towers. This is not the family that we know that did it. There's also a suggestion in the World of Ice and Fire that one of the many civilizations that popped up on or one of the many settlements that popped up on the the mouth of the Anywine river on on battle isle and also the raven isle that basically ancient traders 
those coming from Essos that were going up to Casterly Rock or those going to the Iron Islands basically used this spot as a convenient harbor that they would stop there and they would resupply, they would take on water, they would stay there for the night, and then they would move on. We learn within Samuel Carley's chapter that the Ravenly of the of the Citadel, the island it's built on, was originally the home of a pirate king who ruled from that area. So again, this is sort of creating the idea that in between whoever built Battle Isle and the High Towers, is there's quite a long time between them and people just sort of kept moving in there and then giving it up or being chased out and then somebody else eventually would live there and the last ones to do so were the high towers themselves uh, well the family that became known as the high towers we, there's no real this is one of the funny things about them so i'm going to make a bold claim here because i know this is one of the things that people love talking about with the high towers and old town and high tower itself or who literally made it does not super matter for the for this topic in particular for the history of the high tower family because they had nothing to do with it it's not them it is just a relic that was there when they showed up so i'm just going to kind of move past that one and we're going to move into what we know about the the start of the high tower family itself like there's battle isle there's the few stone storage fortress. Where do the high towers come in? And who basically from what we understand is that it was an abandoned fortress and a bunch of guys showed up and took it and claimed it as their own. Later, they got the name high towers from, and where did that name come from? Why were they even called that? Well, they took this, this group of people who seemed to be first men, but maybe not were enterprising dudes. I took the fortress as an early defensible home and then built around it. Here's the quote. When we first, when first glimpsed in the pages of history, the high towers are already kings ruling old town from battle isle. The first quote unquote high tower, the chroniclers tell us was made of wood and rose some 50 feet above the ancient fortress. That was its foundation. Neither it nor the taller timber towers that followed in the centuries to come were meant to be a dwelling. They were purely beacon towers built to light the path for trading ships up the fog shrouded waters a whispering sound the early high towers lived amongst amidst the gloomy halls vaults and chambers of the strange stone below it was only with the building of the fifth tower the first to be made entirely of stone that the high towers became a seat worthy of a great house remember that right here this is when they became a great house before this they were a bunch of chumps that tower, we are told, rose 200 feet above the harbor. Some say it was designed by Brand the Builder, whilst others named his son another Brandon. The king who demanded it and paid for it is remembered as Uther of the High Tower. Yeah, you guys in the chat are making good points here. Christina says that Jerusalem is also a good example. Well, we might as well build on top of this stuff. Yeah, that happens quite a lot in history. There's a pre-existing thing there. It's useful. We'll move in because whoever didn't build it is gone or we killed them. One of the two. So this gives us a very easy early history of the high towers to follow that sort of cuts through the different myths and legends about them. Again, they're first men, sort of, maybe, we're going to get to that, who found Battle Isle deserted like the fortress and moved in. And then after they moved in, they built a wooden tower on top of it, which they used as a lighthouse in order to facilitate trade, to encourage traders to come by. Why are they encouraging them to come by? <laughs> you guys are going to love this one. Although they, for most of this early history, they were considered to be 
backwater weirdos that nobody cared about. They weren't even a great house. They were just guys with a a lighthouse and this weird fortress they they stay in, but nobody really likes them. Who cares? I think uh, Eustace Osgrey with his tower or like the Far Winds or House Burrell on the Three Sisters. This is kind of what, what we're talking about. This is the early history of the High Towers. Continue occupation. Great. Perfect. Love it. Sounds right. A whole bunch of nothings sitting on the Honeywine River with a bunch of beacon towers that they built for reasons. And you see a, a similar kind of story with King's Landing and White Harbor. King's Landing is built around the Aegon Fort, which was built around the the defensible hills that happen to be at Blackwater Bay. White Harbor, the home of the Manderleys, is built around the White Knife's Mouth and also the Wolf's Den, the ancient second Stark Fortress. They took them, it was defensible, they made money, they built up around it, etc. etc. Oh hey, thank you for the super chat. Casey Blue Finucane? Finucane? Don't know how to pronounce that one. Thank you for the 10 New Zealand bucks. No questions. Excited to finally make a live show. Thank you so much for your fantastic content. Nope. Thank you for the super chat. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Apparently doing one later in the day because of, I need to get a haircut worked out for everybody. And this is another quote from the world of ice and fire. We can state with certainty, however, that men have lived at the mouth of the honey wine since the dawn age. The oldest runic records confirm this as do fragmentary accounts that come down to us from maesters who lived amongst the children of the forest. One such, Maester Jellicoe, suggests that the settlement atop Whispering Sound began as a trading post where ships from Beleria, Old Geese, and the Summer Isles put in to replenish their provisions, make repairs, and barter with the elder races. That seems as likely a suspicion position as any. So this is making the case that the children of the forest may have lived here at one time. That, again, what I was saying, it's a convenient spot for these things to continue to happen. So no matter who's living there, it kind of does. Children of the Forest may have lived there at one time. The Maze Makers may have made an outpost at one time. The Valyrians may have, like, basically Dragonstone is a Valyrian outpost. So seeing that from one of the other magical civilizations that are gone makes a ton of sense. But there's going to be one thing that I've sort of been dancing around, and it's I think it's time to talk about it. Many of the hints to these early settlers of those who lived on the mouth of the Honeywine and especially connections George is making has to do with one thing, pirates and the Ironborn. You have the pirate king of the Ravenry. You have the Ironborn's connection to the city with the, with the sea stone chair from Maester Theon. It sits in trade routes. It's a beacon. I mean, it has a beacon tower. It's heavily associated with trade. And there's this curious quote as well. This is from later in the world of ice and fire, the gardeners in the high towers, were the first to cease paying tribute, which they had previously to the Ironborn. When King Theon III Greyjoy sailed against them, he was defeated and slain by Lord Lyman Hightower the Sea Lion, who revived the practice of thraldom in Old Town just long enough to set the Ironborn captured during the battle to hard labor strengthening the city walls. Okay, so revive is an interesting choice of word. If you revive the practice of thraldom, that implies that it used to be a thing right? You don't revive something that's new. Apparently thraldom has been a part of Old Town in the past. That's nowhere in any of this. We heard about a pirate king that ruled from there, but how, why would the high towers be reviving thraldom in Old Town? Oh, oh yeah, we're just getting started here. There's a very, there's a particular kind of, what's the right word of saying this? There's an archetype 
of a kind of house that George likes writing. And he's written more than a few of them in A Song of Ice and Fire. And that is these houses that tend to sit on trade routes and build lighthouses. And sometimes they use it for good to basically, as intended, that they use the lighthouses in order to alert nearby sailors where this where safety is, where to land for trade to take on provisions, all that other kind of stuff. The other kind is the unsavory kind. We're talking about the House Borel of the Three Sisters. We're talking about the Farwins. We're talking about the Ironborn. When they would, they would move the signal fires and the beacons so that ships would crash into the crash into the rocks and islands and stuff like that, wrecking the ship, and then those on the shore would run onto the now ruined ships, steal everything, and kill the crew and take it for themselves. Davos thinks about this when he meets Lord Burrell during his journey to White Harbor, and this is this is a, a very a fairly common tactic where there's a lot of current or I guess former pirates or former pirate houses who are now pretending they're not who do this kind of thing. And in in Sisterton, for example, they have a thing known as the Night Lamp, which is basically the same as the High Tower, except a lot shorter. On top of their their hall, they have a signal beacon so that different ships can know where to go. In the past, or when they're feeling a little poor, they'll move it. And as I said, they'll wreck the ships, they'll sail over and take everything. There's also another weird thing here. Remember Maester Theon mentioning the connection between the Iron Islands and Old Town saying that maybe the, the chair and the, the stone make them one and the same. Well, there's, there's a thing, if you've never heard of it, called the Mark, which is common on the Three Sisters, which is basically people that have a webbing between their fingers, kind of like a fish or something like that. This is meant to remind you of the Lovecraft story Shadows Over Innsmouth, where, spoiler alert for that story, I don't know if I need a spoiler alert for a story like 90 years old, but basically the deep ones, which are effectively what George is talking about when he talks about them in A Song of Ice and Fire, are these like weird half-human fish creatures that worship the old gods and they can breed with humans and make these weird hybrids. Squishers are kind of the same thing. And it's long been suggested that there's some sort of connection between the Ironborn and the deep ones or the old ones or whatever you want to call them. And it's... and. The main thing that these all have in common is that Squishers and Deep Ones and Old Ones and the Ironborn and the Three Sisters, they're all pirates. They like to raid from humans. They steal women, they steal stuff, and they generally are framed as enemies. So I think kind of rolling these things all together, and there's there's something else I'm going to talk about in a second, but you very easily can see a scenario where this high, this signal beacon on top of battle isle was used in much the same way that it was sometimes it was used for legitimate trade and then other times the high towers were effectively pirates and this would explain why they were not a great house why were they looked down on why were they just like random guys living on the honey wine river that nobody cared about even back during these these old times because this is what they were doing. And you can sort of see the modern high towers as the the result of what a lot of these houses tend to try and do after a legacy of pir piracy and theft. They essentially try to erase their history, and they try to make themselves seem a lot more 
what's the right word for it? A lot more respectable. They try to essentially steal a lot of a lot of history. They make up myths about themselves in order to excuse where they came from. Like Old Town itself and the arbor and the straits there are absolutely perfect for piracy. They are a hundred percent. And then there's there's a bit of weirdness here where Lord Lyman Hightower, known as the Sea Lion. Now that's kind of a weird thing, right? Because why would he be called the Sea Lion? Well, you may remember under one of those houses I mentioned early on that were pirates who use beacons, House Farwind of the Iron Islands, or who make their home on that crazy western island known as the Last Light, I think it is. Hang on a second. Lonely Light. And the Farwinds are known to be skin changers. And one of the things they're known for skin changing is sea lions. So it kind of draws a bit of comparison between them that maybe the Farwinds, the Burrells, the Three Sisters, and the ancient High Towers are sort of cut from the same cloth, the same kind of culture that found their way to, that used kind of the same strategy across Westeros. It's not a noble way to live and it would make sense why the high towers were basically looked down upon for quite a lot of their history and why would you do this with a house like the high towers who who are one of the most noble and well-respected and learned houses in the song of ice and fire well george loves playing with expectations and he loves creating these these civilizations and cultures that are extremely overpowered and wonderful in, th- in today's time but when you look back at their origins they're basically a whole bunch of jackasses that stole a bunch of stuff and then parlayed that into a real history. The Starks have a similar kind of thing with the quote about how oh, they were hard men for hard times. When you look at the history of the Starks, they were just another petty king who conquered everyone around them. The Valyrians started off as shepherds and then also slavers who eventually parlayed that along with their dragons into a massive empire. The High Towers are no different. They have origins that they're not proud of that don't really match who they are now. But that's where a lot of civilization and empire building comes from. Like even the Lannisters and how they stole Casterly Rock from the Casterlies. Yeah, same kind of thing. And there's also there's also a bit of strangeness in their names. So we're going to... I'm just going to go ahead and bring this up. I forget where I typed it in. Hang on a second. So the early kings of the Hightower family are named Uthor who's obviously a cognate for Arthur, King Arthur. But then there's Uragon, his son Uragon, and then his brother Paramour, and in quite a lot of these guys, if you ever thought the name Uragon Hightower sound familiar, it's because it's an ironborn name. Uragon is one of the most common names in, or different variations of it in ironborn culture. There have been four King Uragon at least. And then there's all sorts of cognates like Urthon Nightwalker, Urgon Goodbrother, Urgon Greyjoy. It, it, it goes on and on and on. The Ur start of the name is very, very common in Ironborn culture. And George loves doing that kind of thing where he likes showing off how these root names that end up splitting off in different ways show you a, a shared origin. Like the Valyrians have their the E sound to it the Aegon, Aemon, Aemond, all that other kind of stuff. Daemon, which has the same AE root in it. So this is kind of making the case that like, wait, yeah, there actually is a weird connection between the Iron Islands and the Greyjoys in particular and the old and the High Towers. Urthon Nightwalker is what most people think is the cover name of Euron Greyjoy in Karth. So let let's 
take all this in mind. Let's take all this weird piracy stuff about them and the idea that there were pirate kings coming out of the Honey Wine River, and let's combine that with their their origin story that they came up with. This one is kind of a, a head fuck once you get into it. It's kind of funny. So most people know you. Most people probably heard the story. Obviously, we talked about it earlier. Bran the Builder, who built the High Tower for King Uther of the High Tower. Well, there's another story about King Uthor. The story is, of course, about Maris the Maid. You ever heard of Maris the Maid? Well. Here we go. From the World of Ice and Fire, Maris the Maid, the most fair, whose beauty was so renowned that 50 lords vied for her hand at the first tourney ever held in Westeros. The victor was the gray giant, Argoth Stoneskin, but Maris wed King Uthor of the High Tower before he could claim her, and Argoth spent the rest of his days raging outside the walls of Old Town, roaring for his bride. So, Maris the Maid is one of the daughters of Garth Greenhand. Okay. And let's break down that theme of theft and piracy that is alive and well in the High Tower story. So break down that little story. First the maid, the daughter of Garth Greenhand, is promised to Argoth Stoneskin, who wins a tournament. And instead, Uthor of the High Tower steals her and then marries her. Also by proxy, if you think about it, Uthor is not related to Garth Greenhand. He effectively steals the bloodline of the first king of Westeros by marrying his daughter, despite the fact that she was promised to Argoth. Boy, that sounds like something the Ironborn would do. They're well known for stealing women. <laughs> That's kind of their whole thing. It's weird that George would write this ancient story about the origins of House Hightower and make sure to include stealing a wife from Garth Greenhand. Everyone's a daughter of Garth Greenhand. True. There's quite a lot of them. Where does stone skin come from? I think Crowfoot's daughter has talked a lot about that. She's talked a lot about the Grey King and a lot about Garth. So I'll go look up the Sputed Lands YouTube channel. She's probably talked about him quite a bit. So funny story, Uthor is not the, the magical bloodline relative of Garth. It's his wife, Maris. And it also creates this connection that the High Towers are taking from the Gardeners. That the Gardeners are the ones in charge, but it's the High Towers that take stuff from them or that they take marriages from them in exchange for something else. And you can kind of, again, piece this all together. You have the lighthouse, you have the mouth of the honey wine, naturally leads itself to piracy. You have Uthor of the high tower. Well, where did he get the money to build this high tower if they were nobody's beforehand? <laughs> Pirates. Pirates are very good at, a, at acquiring a lot of money really fast. Like, for instance, Euron Greyjoy is fabulously wealthy just by stealing shit from people. It's also quite possible that the story of Corlys Velaryon is very similar, where he went out on his nine voyages and came back wealthier than the... Well, I'm sure he did some legitimate trade, and I'm sure that was a big part of it. But there's also the fact that if you're going to survive nine voyages to the ends of the world in a place like Westeros, you're going to have to be a good fighter. And maybe you, maybe you stole some shit. And so... I think that's probably the true story of the origins of House Hightower. These are upjump pirates that managed to find their way to marry into the gardeners and now claim they essentially stole a legacy from Maris the Maid and use her as the, the cover and for the ability to integrate themselves into the Reach, even though when you look at their name and when you look at their behavior and how they sort of came from nowhere, it, it sounds way more like they are pirates from the Iron Islands who stuck around at the 
as as like the pirate kings of Raven Isle, basically, and then tried to basically make it legit and become a naturalized part of the the Reach culture. There is, I mean, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Especially with where the where the hell did they pay for the high tower come from? And I especially love this part of the story of Maris the Maiden Uthor Hightower. You know what that means? It means they're the high tower's claim to dominion over the reach comes from the female line. Uther the high tower is a nobody. It's his wife, Maris, that is that is the important one, which is extremely funny when you think about House of the Dragon and how the high towers are insistent that male lines are the only one that matters. Rhaenyra can't be queen, neither can Rhaenys. It's only the male line. And then you look at the high towers history, their claim to fame comes from the female line. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hypocrisy, thy name is Hightower. Yeah, and again, in these stories, there's no mention of where Uthor and his king and Urgon came from. They just sort of popped into existence out of nowhere. This is a general hallmark in George's histories of a house that has less than reputable origins that has tried to erase it. Yeah, that's right, Guilty Undertaker. If you go back far enough, Euron's coming to old attack on Old Town is an ironborn civil war. There, I'm, I've, this is something I wrote in, and there's a, there's a very big difference between the naturalized pirates of Old Town, aka the High Towers, and the rest of them, where the it's the idea between the shepherd and the hunter. The the rest of the Ironborn basically act like hunters, where they go out and seek prey and they skin them. It's the story that you can you can shear a sheep a thousand times, but you can only skin it once. The Ironborn believe in skinning, but the but the High Towers believe in shearing. They effectively took what was a legacy of piracy and turned it into a trade empire. They decided they would rather shear the sheep every time they came by through taxes and through tariffs and through stuff like that and building up their own trade and building up a flock that they could continue to harvest from rather than going out and finding wild animals and killing them. That's sort of the difference here. They may have common origins, but they definitely diverged in terms of their strategy. Yes, that's right, Eugene. They also use it against the Tyrell, that the origin of House Tyrell is through a female line. So are the High Towers. <laughs> Gaslight the way. Yeah. I know. Hypocrisy. Nobility with hypocrisy. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the difference with between them and what seems to be their cousins in the Ironborn. And there's also a bit of weirdness to the story of Bran the Builder and the High Tower. So if you guys go back and read this, there's actually a really good video that History of Westeros and Crowfoot's daughter did like a month or so ago talking about Bran the Builder. Boy, is the story of the creation of the High Tower nearly identical to Storm's End. It starts off the same thing, that there were a bunch of little buildings that kept getting knocked down or burned down. Obviously, we talked about how the High Tower previously were wooden towers, wooden sig signal beacons that kept burning down. By the way, why were they getting burned down? Because people hate pirates and they kept sacking it. And then eventually, Bran the Builder shows up and builds them a, mag a magical structure that's, that lasts forever. It's the ex oh, I'm sorry. It's the exact same story of Storm's End. That's one-to-one. Now, the High Tower itself does have a really long history. And I'm not saying that Bran the Builder didn't build it. And it definitely seems to be sort of magical in how long it's lasted. But I am going to say... Boy, does it sound like maybe the High Tower stole part of the story from House Durandon. It certainly would work with the rest of their history. Don't ask Uther High Tower where his father was born. Great Wick, nailed it. That's probably the truth of it. 
It probably came from the Iron Islands. It's very, very possible that the story of the creation of the High Tower is basically identical to the creation of the Great Castle High Tide by Corlys Velaryon, which comes up in Fire and Blood, where the original House Velaryon Castle is kind of a dump. Nobody really likes it. After Corlys got fabulously wealthy, instead what he did was he commissioned the creation of the Grand Castle of High Tide, which is supposed to look like the the Aaron home of wow I can't the Eerie. It uses the same kind of stone. It's designed to be the grandest castle in all of Westeros, and he finances it with his venturing money, wherever that came from. It seems like the High Tower is probably the same exact thing. It would also be very funny if the High Towers never paid Brandon the Builder for the High Tower. That would be just fantastic. Also, if you're looking for a connection, actually Tinfoil Timer, the sort of this sort of thinking you're looking at common and thinking about it. If you're looking for a connection between Euron Greyjoy and the High Towers, well, if they share an origin, boy, that would be one. Like a, a long lost origin kind of thing. But there is one thing about the High Tower that we haven't seen from the other supposed creations of Bran the Builder. It's that there doesn't seem to be anything particularly magical about the High Tower itself. We've seen from the wall that it's basically impossible. We've seen some storms end that Melisandre has to go underneath the walls to use her shadow baby. If there's some kind of magic around the high tower, we haven't seen it yet. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just hasn't showed up. Yeah. Adventuring money from dungeon crawls or stealing stuff and going back to Westeros and selling it. It is very tall. I'm not saying he didn't build it. I'm just saying, I don't know if it's magical. It hasn't come up other than it's unbelievable durability over the ages. Yeah, Bran the Builder and his pirate clientele. Pirates are become lords very, very quickly. Also, fun fact about Old Town, it is so old, the settlement's there, as nobody knows the name of it anymore. If you haven't really thought about it, it is kind of a weird name. It's like calling someplace Old City. It's like, oh yeah, what is the name of that? Nobody knows anymore. The High Towers have been there so long that the name's been lost. It's kind of like Old Stones up in the Riverlands. Just kind of, whatever. We're just calling it Old Town at this point. In the comments, what is the real name of Old Town? Make one up. I'd love to hear it. It's probably, probably have something to do with the uh, Ironborn, honestly, if we're talking since what we've been talking about here. But considering it seems it 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 seems like the High Towers are interested in laundering a bunch of history into themselves. It's it's also quite possible that Brand the Builder did build the High Tower, but the story of it is one that they just totally cribbed from the Durandans to make it sound more impressive. There's Whispering Sound, there's the Honey Wine, there's Battle Isle, there's Raven Isle. Give me a name for an old town. Just go for it. New Wick. <laughs> kind of like New York. Oh, Morley, you sent a PayPal thing? Thank you. Let me check it out. Okay, so thanks PayPal for logging me out. <laughs> Is my fingerprint not good enough for you? I'm going to yell at technology now. Thank you, Mora. Really appreciate it. Another good one. <laughs> the Kraken's Clutch, yeah. The real name of old town is New Town. Holy shit. Amazing. Classic stuff. So that's my that's my theory for the origins of High, House Hightower. I think there's enough weird things about their history, how they come out of nowhere, the way that early Hightower kings have the same name as Ironborn, the connection with old Maester Theon draws between Battle Isle and the, the Seastone Chair, their positioning, the fact that there actually was a pirate king on the Raven Isle, I, and the way that they sort of steal blood, Garth Greenhand's bloodline through Maris the Maid, and it becomes Uthor's family, not Maris's family. I think it just makes, I think it makes an easy case that these are ancient Ironborn pirates that effectively legitimize themselves. I don't think they built Battle Isle. I don't think they're like the descendants 
of whoever did build it probably the maze makers it sounds like from the descriptions of what it's like inside of it i think they're enterprising local pirates that decided they wanted to become what does asha call them greenlanders they're like greenlander ironborn who have conveniently used the fog of history to erase those origins and make themselves out as something very different. The other really interesting story about the origins of the High Towers comes from, of course, the founding of the Citadel. And that is, of course, Paramore the Twisted. Weird name, otherwise known as Paramore High Tower. It is maybe the strangest and most interesting part of their entire family that's directly on the page. So you, uh, the house officially started with King Uthor, again, who supposedly had Bran the Builder build the High Tower, and then stole Maris the Maid from Argoth. From that union with Maris the Maid comes his firstborn son, Urgon. Again, this is the Ironborn name that's being repeated. It'd be really weird for the ki- the first kings of the High Tower to name themselves the same as Ironborn kings. That is just kind of bizarre. Like, if you're looking at Reachmen, basically all the gardeners name themselves different versions of Myrn and Garth. None of them are named Uragon. None of them are named Uthor. Aaron M says, do you think Asha in the main story is meant to be an ideological descendant of these original high towers? I think that's a pretty good way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's probably true. It's, it's if, if her plan went through, they would probably end up quite a lot like the high towers. So after him comes again, his son, Uragon, who notably, who is most notable for having a younger brother named Paramore. The quote here goes, the origins of the Citadel are almost as mysterious as those the High Tower itself. Most credit its founding to the second son of Uther of the High Tower, Prince Paramore the Twisted. A sickly boy born with a withered arm and twisted back, Paramore was bedridden for much of his short life, but had insatiable curiosity about the world beyond his window. So he turned to wise men, teachers, priests, healers, and singers along with a certain number of wizards, alchemists, and sorcerers. It is said that the prince had no greater pleasure in life than listening to these scholars argue with one another. When Paramore died, his brother King Urgon bequeathed a large tract of land beside the honey wine to Paramore's pets, that might that they might establish themselves and continue teaching, learning, and questing after the truth. And so they did. Okay, so if you don't hear this and, and think Bran Stark or the Children of the Forest, what are you even doing here? This is very clearly a reference to Bran as he currently is. Underneath Bloodraven's cave, his relationship to Maester Lewin, to Bloodraven, his ability to look through the past. Like, this sounds exactly like a, like a green seer, basically. Yeah, Bran Stark, Bloodraven, Tyrion Lannister, Willis Tyrell. It's all part of the same general idea that George loves talking about, and he puts into constantly in A Song of Ice and Fire. That's, of course, the Fisher King or the Wounded King from Arthurian legend. Even the name of Paramore's father tells you the same. His father's name's Uthor, which is very similar, of course, to Arthur, Arthur Pendragon. So you make make an obvious allusion here between Paramore and the Fisher King, as does Bran, as does Bloodraven, as does Willis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you've never heard of the Fisher King in Arthurian legend, it's basically, it changes from time to time, but the the core of it is that there's a king who has been wounded or deformed in some way, and he's healed when has like somebody answers his questions correctly, and he knows where the Holy Grail is. It kind of changes a fair amount, but the, it's the basic idea is a magical king who can't who has some sort of injuries or cannot move, and yet despite that, they end up being able to do mag- magnificent things. It's kind of like a death pays for life kind of thing where 
as a result of their injuries, sort of, they are able to do amazing things. If you want to hear more about Fisher King, I know Bookshelf Stud has a really good essay about it. Just look up Bookshelf Stud and Fisher King. He talks about Brian with it. I'm sure Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy of Radio Westeros have great content somewhere about this. Lady Gwyn loves Arthurian legend, and they will know a lot more than I will. Oh, Uther Pendragon's name of Arthur's father in the legend. There you go. So it's pretty much on the nose. If you want to know more about what's going on with Paramore here, it's an obvious reference to Arthurian legend and the Fisher King. It'd be like if you named a character Aragorn. It's on the nose. So the, the story of Paramore, other than just sort of giving us a history lesson for where the Citadel comes from, why is, why is this here? This is one of the unique things about the High Towers. And it sort of gives us a little bit of characterization about the High Tower character after the legacy of piracy ends and how they change sort of what they're doing because that's the Uthor is important as a character because he signals a change where they have now built the high tower. He has decided to integrate with Garth Greenhand's children by taking Maris to wife. And now they've founded essentially the world's first university. This is not something you would see from Euron Greyjoy, nor would you see it from, from Balon. You wouldn't see it from the I God, what's his name? Why can't I remember his name? Not Aaron. God damn it. How can I not remember his name? Thick as a castle wall. Well, dumb as a stump. It's Victorian, Victorian Greyjoy. Victorian Greyjoy would never do something like this. Neither would Euron, neither would Balon, etc., etc., etc. Oh yes, yeah, guys, please slam the like button. Two more likes, and we'll give away a free T-shirt to my Threadless shop. 114 of you watching. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying your Saturday. Thanks for hanging out with me. Yeah, just slam the like button, and you can. We'll do a thing, and we can enter, and somebody can get a free T-shirt. It'll be a lot of fun. Or actually, people have been buying T-shirts and stickers mostly. Because there's a sale going on, but anyway, it's very much a change in character for the high towers. They want to change their legacy. They want to change the trajectory of their lives as a as a house. Very much a new way versus old way idea. And it's interesting because this also tells us a little bit about Maris the Maid. So when you look at a lot of Garth's children, most of them break down along very similar lines. The males, I mean, his sons basically are usually associated with battle or kingship in some way. Most of them are great warriors. And then his daughters are generally smart or magical. You get Rose of Red Lake, who is famous for being a skin changer. Floris the Fox, who was obviously quite shrewd and conniving. Evelyn Eversweet, who is who convinced the Bee King to let her have dominion over like honey and, and like bees and stuff like that. That one's a little strange. Rowan Goldtree, who had her golden apple and whatever. Maris the Maid, we're told she's basically just incredibly beautiful. But you see, Paramore is her son. Therefore, you're getting this idea that the massive intelligence and this sort of obsession with learning probably comes from Maris. It it lines up with the rest of the the rest of the stories. Oh, we got it. Alright, so we got 82. So let's do a giveaway. If you want to, if you want to be entered into the drawing to get a free t-shirt from my Threadless shop, which you can find at joemagician.threadless.com, I think that's what it is. Links in the description. Type the word Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R. Type the word Fisher. You'll be entered to win. If you've won recently, try not, please don't enter. That way you don't end up so someone else gets a chance, but you know, type the word Fisher in chat. Let me type it out. There you go. All right, so we'll go ahead and take that at 420. Aid. 
It's funny, right? Oh, thank you for the super sticker from Liet Rubenfeld. A unicorn. Very beautiful. Thank you. So this, this focus on learning and magic and history coming through Paramore the Twisted and carried on through the rest of the family to the current times is probably, probably a way of connecting them to Garth's other daughters. That Maris isn't just beautiful, she's probably really smart. Because... Many of her siblings are too. They end up being quite clever. And while the boys tend to be just sort of dumb jocks who are really good at fighting people. And the high towers tend to end up being sort of like a mishmash of the two where they are quite martial and they're great seafarers and explorers and probably pirates too. And that's sort of where the legacy of that sort of exploration comes from. But they're also kind of a seat of knowledge and power and wealth where it's they're sort of fighting against each other. It's hard for one family to focus on both. Usually families are either great warriors or they're great administrators and that kind of thing. And they, they sort of try to be both and it doesn't end up working for quite a long time, but it sets a general strategy that the idea of learning and outsmarting and um, having better technology or better strategy, what you're doing ends up being a hallmark of the high tower family. It appears that they, have largely gone away from whatever sort of unsavory origins they had before they built the high tower. Basically, Are shipping globally or just the U.S. I think it does. Sh I've seen it shipped to Europe. It's up to the it's up to the website itself from Threadless. So I'm pretty sure they do ship globally, but I've only ever seen it gone to Europe. And again, kind of like the point that Aaron made earlier about the idea that of Asha's Greenlander strategy. This this seems to be the same as the high towers they're going to try and win on a different axis sort of abandoning their less than a reputable origin and it's from Paramore the twisted example and the citadel and the idea of learning and sorcery being a key to their strategy that their new strategy for surviving comes into fruition so this is very early on in the quote unquote high tower dynasty. What happens after this? They found the Citadel, the high tower is built, and now they begin their legendary journey through history, right? Well, sort of. Things don't go very well for the high towers for quite a long time. Although the high tower itself built upon Battle Isle was largely impregnable due to being obviously on an island and the fortress that, no, that you couldn't knock down the walls of, the town and the city that eventually became known as Old Town around it was not impregnable. Obviously, it doesn't go all the way around. So this decision that they made to focus on learning and trade as more of their keys to power as a family consequently made the High Towers the absolute number one target in the reach in most of Westeros for people that wanted to essentially steal from the rich, which the High Towers were trying to be. Pirates, thieves, and conquerors all looked at Old Town and went, ooh boy, we are going to Take everything these jackasses have, we're going to steal it, and they're not going to be able to do a damn thing about it. And you know what? They were kind of right. Things sucked for quite a long time for the for the high towers in Old Town. Quote from World of Ice and Fire, As Old Town grew wealthy and powerful, neighboring lords and petty kings turned covetous eyes upon its riches, and pirates and reavers from beyond the seas heard tales of its splendors as well. Thrice in the space of a single century, the city was taken and sacked. Once by Dornish King Sam Waldane, the Starfire, Solidarity, way to go Sam Waldane, love the Starfire. Once by Cahorid the Cruel and his Iron Man, and once by Giles the First Gardener, the Woe, who reportedly sold three quarters of the city's inhabitants in slavery, but was unable to breach the defenses of the High Tower and Battle Isle. Antalon asks, are the High Towers renowned for their seafaring or their fleet? 
both, but those come later. We tend to think of Old Town as it is today. It's protected by its massive walls and its army and its navy. It's also protected by Highgarden and also the Iron Throne, as well as the Faith of the Seven. The Starry Step provides essentially a shield of the faith around it because you mess with the high towers, you mess with the faith as well. Not so much in these old days. They didn't have those things yet. They were known as extremely minor kings. They were the petty kings of the mouth of the Honeywine. They didn't have much of an army or navy at this point, and nobody really cared about them. They were kind of like backwater jackasses who happened to have this weird beacon tower thing, but that's kind of it. It's honestly fairly similar to how Davos treats the Borels when he goes to Isserton. That's why I made that comparison. It's also kind of how the Far Winds are treated. They're just kind of these weird guys that don't have much power, but they have a bunch of money that they got from somewhere, but don't have, they're not powerful in a traditional way. They're just kind of dudes with a, with a beacon tower. Huzzah. Oh, there we go. Let's go ahead. We got 25 entered. So if you want to win last chance, type Fisher into the chat and I'm going to go ahead and roll this one. It's going to let the chat catch up for a second. I know there's a delay on it. It's a short one. I'm not playing video games or anything, so I don't really care, but let's go ahead and do this. All right, here we go. Last call. And there we go. Dr. Debunk. Interesting name. Congratulations. You can send me a DM on Twitter at the Joe Magician, or you can email me at askjoemagician at gmail.com and I'll go ahead and give you a code and you can get yourself a free t-shirt or you, you actually get $20 off whatever you want to buy at my Threadless shop. It happens to be the same amount as a t-shirt. But congratulations. Way to go, Dr. Debunk. Message me and I'll send those to you. And yeah, so when raiders and when conquerors would show up, the high towers would destroy the bridges and they would leave everyone outside to fend for themselves. And they would just retreat into battle aisle, into the fortress and into the high tower and hope to essentially wait them out. Again, there's no faith in these times. There's no religious zealots and armies waiting to protect them. And we see this kind of behavior in other places in the Song of Ice and Fire, notably the Holdfast in the Riverlands. Jamie comes upon one that honestly is probably very similar to what early House Hightower was like. Um, it says, inside the home, all the fires have been put out, but some still smoked and none of them were cold. The nanny goat that hot, hairy Merrill found rooting through a vegetable garden was the only living creature to be seen, but the village had a holdfast as strong as any in the Riverlands, with thick stone walls 12 feet high, and Jamie knew that was where he'd find the villagers. They hid behind those walls when raiders came, and that's why there's still a village here, and they're hiding there again from me. Again, extremely similar to what we're hearing about early Hightower behavior. Somebody shows up, they let them sack everything else. Everyone that they can gets inside the high tower. They wait for them to leave. They come out and they rebuild. And they just sort of did that over and over and over and over again. Like three, three times being sacked in a century is not good. You're not growing a city at that rate. Old town at this point <laughs> sucked. Nobody liked living there. They had very little respect. And again, they were independent at this time. They were the petty kings of the honey wine for whatever that mattered. Because nobody gave them any respect. So eventually the high towers themselves got wise to the fact that being destroyed over and over again, having your wealth sacked constantly was a bad move for if you want to become more powerful. And there's sort of two ways. There's a few ways you can go from that position. If you're somebody like the high towers, you basically want to create a trade empire and you want to amass a lot of wealth and use that to protect yourself, but it keeps getting stolen. So what do you do? Okay. You can build or hire an army. 
a standing army to hang around you expensive hard to maintain and if they're sell swords you're fucked if somebody else pays them more not great you could build really really good walls and hope that keeps people out sometimes work sometimes doesn't just suck and they last for a long time so that's not awesome and the other one is you could try and build political alliances to protect yourself high towers chose the second one they decided they wanted to turtle up and basically that's how they would survive this long-standing assault on their on the on the town or the city i'm sorry my voice keeps cracking i need some water invest in a crypto tower oh god there we go so if you've never heard this term before if you've never heard of turtling basically it's a term that kind of comes from rts games kind of like starcraft and like command and conquer and stuff like that it's basically a strategy where you build yourself an impregnable defense and then eventually you wait for your enemy to run out of resources trying to break it and then you counterattack and knock them out you just survive the siege until they run out of stuff that's what turtling kind of is or if you play magic the gathering it's often called building yourself a pillow fort it's that's my favorite way of saying it it's just imagine somebody sitting inside a whole bunch of pillows all you can see their eyes and they're glaring at you that's kind of what the high towers did and it kind of worked from the world of ice and fire the wooden palisades and ditch that had protected the city heretofore having so obviously been proved inadequate the next king of the high tower otho the second spent the best part of his reign surrounding old town with massive stone walls thicker and higher than any seen in westeros to this point this effort bigged the city for three generations, it is written, but such was their strength that later reavers and would-be conquerors were persuaded to seek plunder elsewhere, and those who did presume to attack Old Town did so to no avail. So that, that was their strategy. They turtled up, they built these massive walls, they made themselves too hard to conquer, and so raiders and reavers just went otherwise, somewhere else where it was easier to take stuff. And it's at this point, the previously ignored high towers became what an, an honest to God real threat in the reach and started amassing wealth and power. And their much more powerful cousins, I guess, the gardeners actually started paying attention to them. Also note that one of the people that could no longer sack Old Town is the gardeners who had been doing it previously. We talked about that earlier. One of the, one of the three people who sacked Old Town was a gardener. Oh, thank you from Kraken Queen, 50 PLN. In Europe, you can visit many old towns. It is common name of medieval part of the city. Many part, many are part of UNESCO heritage in the Witcher game. Novigrad was inspired by the Polish city Gdansk, Gdansk, and it's Old Town. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Thank you for the super chat and thank you for the knowledge. Do we get a hat at 100 likes? Sure. You guys put another eight likes on there. We're putting on a hat. Although, do you do I cover up the magnificent haircut? Th this is previously petty lords nobody gives a shit about, and suddenly they're wealthy and powerful. Again, this is a lot like the Valarian, which may be why the high towers don't like the Valarian. So they're like, hey, you're stealing our strategy. And at this point, when we're talking about the history of the Reach, the gardeners had largely taken over all the house, all the land that we now know as being part of the Reach itself. They had taken over all their cousins, all the other cousins, all the other uh, children of Garth Greenhand. And most of them had bent the knee except for the Arbor and Old Town. Those were the last two holding out. So the High Towers, what are they going to do with this suddenly, these really good walls, and they suddenly have a lot more money than they have in the past. They're building up their city to becoming a world power. What happens? Well, obviously you would think that they, there'd be a protracted siege and the High Tower, the old, the gardeners would show up and they try to conquer them. It goes on for 50 years. Maybe the high towers win. Maybe the gardeners win. Nope. The high towers go the other way and they bend the knee to the house gardener without a fight. 
They give up Old Town. They give up their crown and say, we will become your, your vassal. But they do it much like the Dornish do with the Targaryen. They do it by making a treaty that favors them. Essentially saying, we'll do it, but you're going to give us a lot of favors so that we don't have to have this long protracted war. And here's the quote. It is not through war that the high towers were brought into the kingdom of the reach, however, but through long negotiations and marriage. When Lyman Hightower took to bride the daughter of King Garland II Gardner, whilst giving his own daughter's hand in marriage to her father, the Hightowers became bannermen to Highgarden, reduced from wealthy but minor kings to the greatest lords of the reach. Old Town was the last of the ancient realms to bend the knee to Highgarden, not long after the King of the Arbor was lost at sea, allowing his cousin, King Mern III Gardner, to make the Isle part of his domain. By terms of this marriage treaty, the gardeners also undertook to defend the city against any assault by land, which freed Lord Lyman to turn his attention to his quote-unquote great purpose, the building of ships and conquests of the sea. So this is a very clever strategy from the high towers here. And it's again, it's the same one the Dornish use when the Targaryens show up. And it's actually kind of, this is going to be funny. This is a, a well-known strategy if you play like Crusader Kings 2 or 3, where if you're playing as an independent lord, it's often a lot harder to do that when you're starting to get the ball rolling in terms of development and getting your, your lands and amassing power, that if you're doing it on your own, everybody attacks you. Anybody and everybody. That's what we saw from the raiders and the reavers and the conquerors. The Danes show up and sack Old Town. Well, they're not going to do that anymore if they sack Old Town and the might of the Reach comes back to slap them across the face and burn down Starfall. They're going to think twice about that one. And again, yeah, it's a, it's a similar thing in Crusader Kings, where very often the advice is you find a larger king or emperor, you swear fealty for a hundred years or so, and then you challenge them and take the throne yourself. And that's kind of what we're seeing here from a uh, whole town in the, and the, and the high towers. And that's exactly what the search hole, I guess, founder of the modern high tower family strategy did in the last King Lord Lyman, otherwise known as the sea line. It's the same guy by the terms of the marriage treaty. The gardeners also undertook to defend the city against any assault by land, which freed Lord Lyman. Oh, I already said this part by the end of his reign, no Lord or King in all of Westeros could match the strength of house high tower at sea. A great statue of Lord of Lyman high tower stands overlooking old towns Harbor to this day gazing off down whispering sound the last high tower king is still remembered as the sea lion so they essentially gave up their crowns and became more powerful for it by solving their main problem their neighbors up the river the gardeners might destroy them at any time well that's gone now so now that we can focus in on everything else yeah dr debunk a very pragmatic and pirate way to survive and then fight to the death for family honor you make a deal and that's what the high towers did Lord Lyman's descendants shared its vision. With rare exceptions, they tended to their own gardens and to their own city, avoiding entanglement in the endless wars of the petty kings, and later of the seven kings that emerged. High, High Garden defends our backs, Lord Jeremy Hightower said once, so we are free to gaze outward, to the sea and to the lands beyond. Gazing outward and building ever more ships to protect his trade, Lord Jeremy doubled the city's wealth. His son Jason doubled it again and rebuilt the high tower a hundred feet taller. So actually, interesting note there, the high tower has been improved over time. It is not the same one that supposedly Bran the Builder built. It is a continual project. They continue, they make it higher and higher and higher over time. So is it magical? I don't know. Maybe. Could be. 
but certainly they're building onto it. That's that's something interesting. Yeah, and so the high towers are able to specialize heavily this way, and it pays off mightily for them. It's kind of an unusual method of thriving in a medieval society, but it's not an unheard of heard of one. Like for instance, when you look at empires like the Holy Roman Empire, a lot of times the most powerful part of the Holy Roman Empire was not the emperor itself. It would be one of one of the dukes, and they effectively would elect a weak emperor who would protect them, but really didn't threaten them at all. They would they would thrive in that scenario, and yeah, often be way more powerful than the emperor, despite not being the liege lord. Interesting strategy. They definitely have a magical basement. That's true, Christina. There's definitely a magical basement, and basically, the you can see that from the way the gardeners treated them. I mean, the high towers gave up their crown, but they didn't give up their independence. They basically do whatever they want. As long as they continue to throw money up the river to High Garden, that's basically it. That's all they have to do. And notably, this strategy basically continued for several thousand years. The high towers would, would basically routinely be exempt from any military conquest they didn't want to take part in. The gardeners wouldn't expect them to. They would hand over some money in taxes and give them supplies, use their arm, use their navy to, to effectively like blockade if they, the trade routes, if they ever wanted to. And that was it. It was a pretty good scenario. It was like little fingers dream. <laughs> it's the strategy of Bravos as well. They do, they basically do the same thing. They don't take part in many wars, but they use their navy and their wealth and influence to make sure they don't have to fight them. Oh, good question, Aaron. Same question of Winterfell, interestingly. Is only the original part magical, or are the new parts that were added somehow brought under the magical protections? Well, when you look at Storm's End, I forget which wall Melisandre has to get under, but it's one particular wall. After she gets underneath that one, then she can unleash her shadow baby. So it's kind of like a bubble around the, uh, the structure. So whatever's magical about the high tower, they've made it taller over time. So I'm not really sure. That'd be an interesting one if we ever actually see if the high tower is magical or not. And there's, I'm, I'm just going to say this now, there's a whole lot of like different kings and lesser lords of the high towers during this time, but they largely all do the same thing. They build their walls higher, they amass a lot of wealth, they make the high tower cooler, and they don't take part in wars, they don't take new territory. They, as they said, they tend their garden. That's kind of it. That's what they do. They are not interested in conquest. They are not interested in expanding their lands. They have what they have, and they're just going to continue to build into it. And that's pretty much what happens. So the next part is the relationship to the maesters in the faith. So one major part of the strategy of the high towers at this point that often gets overlooked is the use of their maesters and later the faith of the seven as part of their shield. Because as a part of this, since they're no longer fighting battles, they're winning political battles. They manipulate people. They use uh, treaties and they use kind of like Tywin and actually as Otto Hightower does, they win wars with their pens rather than their swords. That's basically kind of what they do. Obviously the maesters in the Citadel don't make money on their own. So how do they keep their doors open? How do they pay for the food for all the maesters? How do they keep the doors open? The Hightowers. The Hightowers give them all their money. That's basically the story of Paramore and his pets. The Hightowers gave them the land, they gave them the funding. So, the Maesters, as a broad organization, have an incentive to make sure they stay, you know, a thing. They have to keep the Hightowers wealthy and happy. This ends up being a lot of the, a lot of the crux of the Maester conspiracy. Where it's like, oh, the Maesters are behind everything. They're manipulating everything in Westeros for their for the gain of themselves and the High Towers. And I mean, like, I'm gonna say no to part of that. 
we have seen the POV of certain mace. We have seen a lot of maesters talk and it doesn't seem like on an individual level that many of the maesters or any of them are basically thinking like, okay, so how does this decision benefit house Hightower? That doesn't seem to be what they do. A lot of them are just sort of nerds who are obsessed with their, their studies or their books or teaching children or whatever. They get wrapped up in their own worlds and they're not really, there's not really a massive conspiracy among the general maester populace in order to make sure the high towers are being taken care of. But that doesn't mean it's not happening at all. When you look at grand maesters, when you look at the, the council of the arch maesters, when you look at the seneschal and the assignments that are given out and the general goals of the top of the organization, they, they, they have to contribute some amount of their effort to making sure the high towers remain happy with them, that they're not pissing them off. It's a little bit like a relationship between the high towers and the gardeners, as it were, where they have a degree of, they have a degree of freedom in their action and what they want to study and how they run their organization. But there are certain things and certain needs they need to take care of so that they don't get cut off from money. Oh, hundred likes. All right. We'll throw on. Where are my hats? Oh, there it is. I'll throw on the Gurm hat. One second. Yeah, I agree, Christina. It's probably more a leadership thing. I don't think the average novice is going around thinking about the high towers and being like, how my, how may I serve house high tower? That's, that's not a thing. I don't think they're doing that. There's no real evidence that it is the higher levels of the Citadel. It's part of the, something they have to worry about. They have to keep the doors open and they have to have the money to do it, to pay for food, to pay for quills and parchment and all those things. And that's where they get it from. So again, it's a bit tough how you would see this on a wider scale. Like how would this sort of quote unquote maester conspiracy manifest? And it, it doesn't really on a wide scale, but on, if you want to look at a small scale of where this would probably happen, the most likely characters to be acting in the interests of old town and by extension, the high towers, it would probably be the grand maester, the ones in the ones in King's landing. They more than the average maester probably has to keep in mind the general large scale politics of Westeros and make sure the Citadel doesn't burn to the ground. Yeah, that's right. Leah. Most people, mo it doesn't seem like most of the maesters we see are aware of the most so-called maester conspiracy either. Yeah. Most of them will probably be surprised to hear that they are all in on some scheme. Like what? Really? I am. Oh strange although that's not even totally true that like if you wanted to look at the grand maester how many of them are actually helping out old town well we have one in a song of ice and fire who doesn't give a shit about old town and that's grand maester he just simps for a uh, tywin lannister and all he cares about is helping house lannister over anything else that doesn't really help out the high towers he's not i mean if auto high towers alive uh, presumably pisel would be in love with him instead but that's not really a high tower conspiracy so I think you have to look at them individually and see which ones are making recommendations that are like explicitly trying to help out the, the Citadel and the high towers at home, but they have their own goals. They're all people. They're not just, they're not the chains they wear. They are people too. Oh, another super chat from Morally. $20. Thank you so much more. The relationship between the maesters and the high towers will be interesting as Euron, see as Euron makes himself known in old town in the winds of winter. Well, that was weird. I don't know what that was. My entire throat just dried out all of a sudden. That was ungrate. I agree more. It doesn't seem to like maesters already. I don't know what he's going to do with the archmaesters. If he sacks Old Town, it won't be pretty. He's already done horrible things to the people he's captured. So not looking forward to that one. You know, the burning of the Library of Alexandria comes to mind. So the next major event for the High Towers at this point becomes the Andal invasion. 
and it really puts the highlight on their focus on manipulation and pacifism towards open war, and the use of the high tower wealth is really on display when the Andals arrive. So the Andals arrive, they start winning wars, the high towers realize, hey, we're probably going to be conquered at some point like everyone else is. And what do the high towers do? Oh, well, obviously they use their massive walls and their army, and there's a protracted war, and the Andals end up sieging it down. Nope, wrong, incorrect. The, the high towers bend the knee, basically are one of the first to do it. They're like, hey, come on in, guys. Let's be pals. Don't need for this war shit. So the quote goes, when the Andals came, the high towers were among the first of the lords of Westeros to welcome them. Wars are bad for trade, said Lord Dorian Hightower, when he set aside his wife of 20 years, the mother of his children, to take an Andal princess as his bride. His grandson, Lord Damon the Devout, was the first to accept the faith. To honor the new gods, he built the first sept in Old Town and six more elsewhere in his realm. When he died prematurely of a bad belly, Septon Robeson became regent for his newborn son, ruling Old Town in all but name for the next 20 years and ultimately becoming the first High Septon. The boy he raised and trained, Lord Tristan Hightower, raised the starry Septon in his honor after his passing. I looked like Gurm when I was coughing. I don't think I've ever seen Gurm cough. I probably should have turned off the camera, though. My bad. I think that quote about wars are bad for trade, I think George took that from the Godfather, from the character uh, Virgil Solozo. Solozzo, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He says, I don't like violence, Tom. I'm a businessman. Blood is a big expense. And that ends up being more or less their strategy towards warfare as the end will show up and they continue it afterwards. They just, they won't fight wars. If an army shows up to conquer them, they will open the doors. They will try and win their battles through letters and through economics and trade. But if it comes down to it, the high towers would rather keep their city than keep their independence. That's sort of their idea. There's also sort of a similar thing in Doctor Who. You may have, if if you're a fan of them, they're a race called the Tivolts. I think that's how you pronounce it. And they basically do the same thing. When anybody shows up to conquer their planet, they, they surrender instantly without a fight. They just allow conquerors to come in and then eventually they drain the conquerors and they manipulate them and they end up causing their downfall, at which point the conquerors fall apart and then a new conqueror shows up. The civilization itself main keeps maintaining itself because it never loses a war. You lose a war, you get your city sacked, you get your your castle sacked, you can lose everything. And for the high towers, survival is more important than anything. They just don't want to fight, which is interesting when you talk about the Dance of the Dragons. Otto has a different view of that kind of thing. Gotta love a quality stream where you can talk about Virgil's Solota. Ah, good point, Guilty Undertaker. Virgil said that just after an attempted hit on Vito Corleone, the High Towers are not above assassination. They seemingly kill a lot of people, but they don't want to do it on a battlefield, which is basically what Virgil Soloto is saying. He tried to kill Don Don Vito or Don Corleone in order to have to avoid a war and to get what he wants just by murdering the, the chop off the head and work with whatever's left. That's that it seems to be the strategy of the high towers. Yeah. And as that quote said, after the arrival of the faith, the high towers do the same thing to the, after the arrival of the handles, they do the same thing to the faith. They give up the old gods. They're one of the first to do it. And not only that, they recognize that becoming the new center of this new rising faith of the handles actually is probably a really good thing. And, it allows them to create another shield around themselves beyond just the gardeners. Quote goes, In the centuries that follow, Old Town became the unquestioned center of the faith for all of Westeros. 
From the dark marble, marble halls of the Starry Sept, a succession of High Septons donned the Crystal Crown, the first of which was given to the Faith by Lord Tristan's son, Lord Barris, to become the Faith of the Seven on Earth, commanding the swords of the Faith Militant and the hearts of the Faithful from Dorn to the Neck. Old Town became their holy city, and many devout men and women traveled there to pray at its Septon shrines and other holy places. Doubtless, it was in part due to these ties to the Seven that the High Towers were so often able to keep themselves separate from House Gardener's countless wards. Very clever strategy. They then create, not only do they have the protection of the Gardeners and the ability to set out their wars, but also the protection of their armies, now they have protection from religion. They have effectively become the center of it, and to attack the High Towers is now indistinguishable from attacking the faith. Didn't King's Landing just open the gates for the Lannister army? Yes, they did, but it, it was, yeah, I guess they did. I guess it comes down to the who's storming the city, if they're going to destroy everything or not. But the High Towers have over and over again managed to surrender in a way to not get Old Town sacked. It hasn't been sacked in centuries at this point, despite previously being a hot spot for getting their, their teeth kicked in. Very, very clever strategy from the High Towers. They now have multiple layers. They are turtling so effectively. Nobody can touch them, and nobody does. And they survive this way for thousands of more years. What's interesting, though, about them is not just that they have created these shields about them, but they, they never try and go further. They, despite the fact that they're mo probably the most powerful house in Westeros that's not the Durandans for most of the history after the Andal invasion, the High Towers never, never attempt to get their crown back. They never attempt to become Kings of the Honeywine again. They never attempt to become Kings of the Reach. They are happy letting the Gardeners be essentially the figureheads and doing what they want without having to deal with the constant politicking and the constant dealing with vassals and warfare. They're just doing their own thing. Very strange, but one highly effective for the Hightower family. They, they basically become the shadow kings of the Reach. They control the greatest amount of wealth. They control the trade routes. They have this massive navy that nobody can stop. They have the hearts and minds of the faithful. They can keep the Ironborn at bay, who basically stop attacking Old Town because there's no point. And then, of course, you have the Maesters as well. So they're, they have the greatest source of knowledge in all of the continent focused on them. This is going pretty well for House Hightower from their humble origins of being most likely shithead pirates. And again, they, they turtled up and this is where they stayed for thousands of years. They are the right hands of the gardeners. They have a trade empire, tons of wealth, a defense nobody can pierce, a defense nobody wants to pierce, religious influence, political power, and things are going really great for the Hightowers. And then, mm, then something happened. You guys may have heard of him or them. It's Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya. They invaded from Dragonstone. They started off with the Riverlands. They took out Hair in the Black. And they decided they want to be the new kings of Westeros. Boy, this sounds like it's not going to go great for the High Towers, right? Again, it's an invading conqueror. They have a technological, technological advantage in dragons. They're winning every battle. The writing's on the wall. Wait, what did the... Guys, remind me. In the chat, what did, what did the High Towers do the last time... A bunch of conquerors showed up and were winning everything, and the writing was on the wall that if you fought them, it was a losing fight. What, what did they do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They gave up. They gave up instantly. They gave up instantly to avoid being slaughtered. And it worked again. God, Faith of the Seven, the father and the mother looked down on the high towers. Same exact story. And what's actually funny is that this time, 
the high towers don't save the gardeners. The quote goes, yet when Aegon Targaryen and his host approach Old Town, they found the city gates open and Lord Hightower waiting to make his submission. As it happened, when word of Aegon's landing first reached Old Town, the High Septon had locked himself within the Starry Step for seven days and seven nights, seeking after the guidance of the gods. He took no nourishment but bread and water, it was said, and spent all his waking hours in prayer, moving from one altar to the next. On the seventh day, the crone lifted her golden lamp to show him the path ahead. If Old Town took up arms against Aegon the Dragon, his holiness saw the city would surely burn, and the High Tower and the Citadel and the Starry Sept would be cast down and destroyed. Manfred Hightower, Lord of Old Town, was a conscious was a cautious lord and godly. One of his younger sons served with the warrior sons, and another had only recently taken vows as a septon. When the high septon told him his vision, vouchsafed him, don't even know what that word means, by the crone, Lord Hightower determined that he would not oppose the conqueror by force of arms. Thus it was no men from Old Town burned on the field of fire, though the high towers were bare men to the gardeners of Highgarden. And thus it was that Lord Manfred rode forth to greet Aegon the Dragon as he approached to offer up his sword, his city, and his oath. Some say Lord Hightower also offered up the hand of his youngest daughter, which Aegon declined politely, lest it offend his two queens. Hey, you guys got it. The white flag. The Hightowers instantly gave up and tried to marry them. Also correct. Nailed it. The Hightower strategy is pretty consistent at this point. They basically let the gardeners burn to death. And afterwards, they used the High Septon and the, the idea that the new king of Westeros, for some reason, has to be crowned in Highgarden, I mean, in Old Town, by the High Septon, personally becomes a thing that lasts basically forever. It's now just a thing the High Septon must anoint the uh, the king with the special oils, and or else they're not legitimate. Again, it's, this is the same idea. It's the same thing they did with the Andals. They will integrate instantly and then try to use that to become the new right hand of their, their rulers. Although there's something different here. And this is something I talked about in my last stream about the idea that the high that the high towers were probably annoyed they were not named Lords of the Reach or at least given High Garden. Now there's reason to think that they probably may they may not have wanted it especially. They had had no desire to overthrow the gardeners. They never raised up in a civil war. They basically were very happy being vassals to it. But with the gardeners wiped out in the field of fire and nobody left to be Lord of the Reach and High Garden basically vacant. You can imagine that the high towers thought that, all right, well, maybe it's time for us to move up. Maybe we'll be the new lords of the reach. We'll be a lord paramount to to Aegon the Conqueror. And instead, Aegon says, no, we're going to give it to these Tyrells. They, they gave over Highgarden? Like, that's all they did in order to become the new lords of the reach? They gave up an empty an empty castle with all all the members of the family dead? Like, why is that worth it? And I sort of talked about it, that this is probably Aegon being quite clever, that he already probably recognized and knew from his travels around Westeros that the High Towers were already the most dangerous house in Westeros, especially from the Reach. They had incredible power, political power, religious power, and if he empowered them even further, it's possible that they could destabilize his, his realm as soon as it starts. And they also sort of don't need him. Their relationship to the gardeners, where they essentially use the gardeners as their own personal army and sort of as their own puppets. Although it went back and forth. I'm not saying I'm not trying to make the gardeners seem like they're pathetic and just like they didn't 
they had no power and will of their own, but the relationship to the high towers is they couldn't even get them to show up to fight Aegon. What's the point of having a bannerman if they won't even show up to fight an invading conqueror? So they clearly didn't have much power over Old Town and couldn't really compel them to do anything. It would probably be bad if you're the new king of Westeros if you maintain that relationship with one of your now major vassals. So instead, he empowers the Tyrells, who are completely dependent on him to maintain their position and also someone that can totally step into the gardener role and depend on the old town it's almost like it's it's with the gardeners dead it's the best way to continue the relationship already at place within the reach between high garden and old town but also a way to not make old town more powerful than it has to be high rolls are certainly very happy with this but i you can definitely imagine they were probably with all the varied Members of House Highgarden, some of them may have thought like, well, why don't we just take Highgarden and we'll take over the Reach. Look, we we gave up everything. We gave you your crown. The High Septon is anointing you. Like, where's our reward for the service? And the, basically there was none. Basically, Aegon decided not to burn them to the ground, which is not really a justifiable reward, especially for a house that prides itself on political influence and manipulation as the hallmark of their power. Yeah, the High Towers portrayed their former masters. You can't trust them. That's another good point. You can imagine Aegon probably saw it that way. They just they prove themselves unworthy and unreliable vassals to the gardeners. So you can imagine they probably would be the same to the target. Oh, a super chat from Anne Talent, ten dollars. Thank you so much. Happy to join the live stream in the chat for the first time. Hey, welcome. Glad you could make it. Yeah, these are these are our good time. So what ends up happening next? Is kind of fascinating because you can sort of see that the high towers a little bit pissed off by this they see themselves as the direct vassals to aegon not the tyrells they think the tyrells are up jumped servants who have no claim to the reach and they sort of treat them like that they there's no respect between the tyrells and the high towers at least not for quite a long time oh what do the high towers do well they start to work on the targaryen dynasty Almost right away. Obviously, Lord Manfred tried to marry his daughter to Aegon, didn't end up working. So what he does next is he works on Aegon's second son, Prince Magor. It was apparently a thing early on that it was suggested that Prince Magor should marry Princess Reyna, daughter of Aenys. And that way to join the two claims and make sure a civil war wouldn't happen. That doesn't end up happening largely because, wait for it, the High Septon suddenly has a huge problem with polygamy. Apparently it's okay for Aegon, but nobody else can have polygamy. I believe that he brought up the same thing with Aenys, but here it was a massive, massive problem. Like, they would be denounced if Magor married Reyna. Well, okay, so it was, I'm sorry, it wasn't polygamy at that time. It was, it was incest, I believe. Yeah, it was incest. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Polygamy comes up later for Magor as a thing. But so the uh, the compromise ends up being that Magor is instead married to, you guessed it, Lord Manfred's daughter, Cerise Hightower. Boy, it's almost like clockwork how this happens, right? The Hightowers get a new lord and they immediately try to ingratiate themselves to them to become the the keys to power for the entire for their their new liege lord. They try to marry into them. And they end up using all their political influence. They end up using the, even the faith of the seven to try and get their way. Yeah, it was incest. I'm sorry. I got that wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I misspoke. 
this is later in my outline, so it, it comes up again with Magor. <laughs> they had a lot of problems with Prince Magor, but not so many they wouldn't marry him. So Princess, I mean, Cerise is married to Magor, and unfortunately, nothing happens. Cerise and Magor apparently have loads of sex. George goes out of his way to tell us this happened. Just all the sex, but Cerise does not get pregnant. It's quite easy to see at this point that George is kind of pointing out the ridiculousness of kings and queens in medieval life that a lot of the conflict with Magor and Old Town and the High Towers probably could have been avoided if Cerise had one child, but it doesn't end up happening. In his frustration, Magor says that she's barren and he takes another wife. Now, now, the High Septon is again very, 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 very mad at Magor and, and says that polygamy is evil and nobody can have it except for Aegon. He's the one exception. After him, it's totally done. Magor has stepped out of line. It has to be undone. He has to stay with Cerise and only Cerise. Magor instead then says, screw you. I don't care. And then he ends up, I believe he sends Cerise back to Old Town, which is kind of a strong move. And then ends up just polygamy, polygamy, polygamy polygamy even harder than he had before. This is largely the start of the problems between the Faith and Magor. And I, I'm going to make, I sort of alluded to this already, but it appears that the High Towers are using the High Septon here to do their dirty, to do their dirty work for them. That they want a royal marriage and for some reason they want it with Magor and they're going to stop at nothing to get it. And they're going to use the High Septon to create political problems for the target as much as they can. That's merciful for Magor. He becomes distinctly less merciful pretty fast. And you, you can sort of end up seeing uh, Magor eventually, especially after he becomes king, ends up fighting a holy war against the High Septon, which is in fact a proxy war against the High Towers for this marriage to Ciri's High Tower. He ends up killing thousands of warrior sons. There's the whole story about how he had bounties on scalps. He would pay like, what was it, a, a, a golden dragon for a warrior's son and a silver for the poor fellows or something like that. It goes crazy. And basically the root of it is that the High Towers wanted a royal marriage and Magor broke it off because he couldn't get Cerise pregnant. Although it appears the problem is with Magor, as we'll find out later. It appears that Magor can't have any children himself. He appears to be infertile because no matter how many women he abducts and forces to marry him and rapes and does all the terrible things in the world, none of them get pregnant, except I think, except I think once. So clearly the problem is with Magor the Cruel, not with uh, Cerise Hightower. At a certain point, it may have been better for somebody just to cheat with her on Magor just so he has a kid, but they probably would have noticed with you know, hair and eyes and all this stuff. One of my least favorite kings? Yeah, nobody likes Magor. Magor sucks. Except for some very strange people. I don't know why they like him. Super chat from uh, Kartiku. $3 just for saying polygamying, polygamying harder. That was a tough one to sound out. Thanks for the super chat. I'm glad, <laughs> glad that one worked for you. So there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on here. We'll, we're probably going to call the stream in a little bit little bit here because we've gone about two hours obviously we're going to talk more about allison hightower and auto hightower as we get closer to house of the dragon coming alive probably the next live stream actually but this sort of just starts a long-term proxy war between the targaryens and the and the hightowers that they are constantly trying to capture the iron throne or at least to get a royal marriage with the targaryen and they're finding it increasingly hard to do so and when they're denied the things they want, a royal marriage or 
it appears quite likely the reach and high garden itself with the Tyrells taking over that they expressed that anger by using the faith of the seven as a weapon against the Targaryen faith. I mean, against the Targaryen, uh, it's kind of a crazy thing to do. They are very, very, very upset that they are not the keys to power effectively in Westeros that they want to be. And even after Maegor's downfall, they instantly pivot away from Maegor and decide to work on Jaehaerys, ends up working. They, f they find him a much easier king to work with. And towards, obviously, the end of Jaehaerys' reign, we see the Hightower efforts to make themselves indispensable to the Targaryen, a thing, with, with, of course, Otto Hightower become Hand of the King and his daughter Alicent eventually getting that royal marriage they've been after ever since the Targaryens landed. But I find it interesting looking back at the Andal invasion and then previously their negotiations with the gardeners in the past that what Otto and Alicent are doing are just kind of like an escalation of this long-term family strategy that if they don't they feel that they need to have marriage packs in order to keep themselves safe to to stay this like weird city state within Westeros and if they don't have those things they become incredibly agitated and with the various tools of politicking and power they have available to them they express those in an increasingly hostile way to the Targaryens oh hang on a second i accidentally just made someone a moderator whoops a daisy yeah there's not going to be four Hightower streams. That's not happening. I would say, though, the difference with Otto Hightower towards the rest of the family is that he's much more open in what he's trying to do. It becomes much more a it's an escalation of the previous strategy. He's not, not just he's not just trying to become an indispensable to the crown. He already is. He's already been hand of the king for basically forever. Him and Viserys are bros. He becomes obsessed with the idea that the high towers will become the kings of all of Westeros. And in that way, you can kind of see a lot of what I was talking about, how it's sort of the greed of Otto Hightower and the, I guess, the dragons in his eyes and the idea of his grandchildren sitting on the Iron Throne that he goes away from the traditional working high tower strategy, that it's he's really flying too close to the sun and it kind of creates the dance of the dragons out of this long-term family history. It's actually just surprising this hadn't happened before that they were usually so I wouldn't say laid back because they are, they are quite vicious when they want to be, but the high towers had really never made this kind of leap to try and obviously take over a liege Lord's power in the way they did. Now, obviously they, they intermarried with the gardeners quite a bit. That was the story of their treaty. The two families became one and the same. But they never became quite as obsessed as Otto Hightower was. Well, uh, Bagai, so the kings with the surname Hightower, Aegon would have never worn the name Hightower because obviously he was known as a Targaryen since Viserys was his father. But there's a there's a lot more family pride on the line than previously there had been, where he wants it known that it's his grandson, it's Otto Hightower's grandson that's the king of Westeros. He wants to kind of supplant Viserys as the important one. And it's quite possible that if his strategy had worked out eventually, yeah, maybe there would have been a Targaryen sitting on, I mean, a Hightower sitting on the Iron Throne, deciding the Hightowers were more important. I really enjoy looking back at all this information and seeing from these extremely humble origins how it's the likely pirates of Old Town completely changed text, remade themselves, erased this awful history that they most likely had 
And then after thousands of years of a, a working strategy and one that was working, like there was no hint that the Targaryens were going to try and burn down the high tower. It was their insistence that they had to have these marriages that kind of pushed Gore and the Targaryen family into war with them. It, it's like they just decided with the gardeners gone, there's no one in the way. It's our time to shine. And that sort of ended up being their downfall. We'll kind of end up talking about this probably at the end of the next stream. After the Dance of the Dragons and after the downfall of the Green Faction, the the High Towers really take a back seat for quite a long time. Kind of like Tywin with Joffrey. Yeah, a lot like Tywin and Joffrey. You can see Otto. Otto and Tywin are pretty much the same. It would actually be funny if Aegon wasn't Viserys' son, but of course he probably he is. He's a dragon rider. That's there's no way that would happen. The High Towers had not married into the Targaryens before that. So actually, and so was Aemond. I think Helena too. So definitely Viserys' kids. Otto wanted to be the important one. And that's that's kind of, someone asked before the stream started, like, was I going to talk about what the, the High Towers are doing in the Winds of Winter and into the main Song of Ice and Fire story? And there's really not a lot to them. There's possibilities with the Sack of Old Town possibly coming to fruition that maybe we'll see Lord Leighton and Melora and the rest of the High Tower family, but they, they just they just kind of disappear from history. They maintain their stranglehold over Old Town, they maintain their influence in King's Landing using the Maesters and the and the, the Faith of the Seven, but they don't really try to do the same kind of high-level politicking and effective attempts to capture the Iron Throne that we see from Otto. It's, re it's really like the gardeners died, and they really were just like, so nothing's stopping us. Why don't we just go for it? Why don't we just completely go for it? <laughs> We'll do what our ancestors couldn't. Our, our ancestors were cowards. They didn't They didn't want power. They just wanted wealth. And it's like that kind of thing. But we'll get into more of Otto and Allison, And we'll talk about Lord Leighton and then Melora and Gerald Hightower. And all the other stuff going on with House Hightower in the current time in the next stream. Uh, if you guys have any questions I didn't answer or stuff I overlooked while I was talking. Because I pretty much monologued the whole time. Throw them into the chat. Let's do this. Quick Q&A before we get out of here. While I drink some water. Because my throat is dry. non secret over the stream, do you think the high tower itself will fall? It's a good question. So definitely the wall seems primed to fall. It's one of those things where it's like Chekhov's tower. It seems like with the burning of the Library of Alexandria and the size of the high tower, it just seems like it's precarious that George is setting it up with Euron's invasion of the Reach, that it would be really emotionally charged and impressive to see it happen. And it would, I don't know, do, do you set up a giant flaming tower and not knock it down at any point in your story? Like, is that the kind of writer he would be? I don't know. I think it would hurt him to burn a library like that, to have Euron sack it. But if he actually managed to, inv to invade Old Town, uh, certainly the Citadel, the Starry Sept, and definitely the High Tower could possibly fall by the end of it. Yeah, but good good question. It's it sort of depends on what Euron wants to do. Does he want to be the lord of the high tower or does he want to see it fall? I don't really have any kind of I've been more or less convinced by people I know that yes, Euron probably will successfully attack Ultan. I just don't know how bad there will, there will be at the damage will be. Given what you're saying, are the high towers just going to surrender to Euron but contrary to the past Euron was burned shit anyway? That would be interesting subversion. I don't think they would surrender to Euron. They definitely do fight pirates, but it's when when they feel overmatched. I don't think they would feel overmatched by Euron Greyjoy, but they would probably fight it out. They 
the way the key part of their surrendering instantly to invaders is when the writing's on the wall, when they know they have no shot, why even fight? That's sort of their thing. I don't think Euron is so powerful that they would feel the same way. Certainly George has gone to great detail to show us details of the harbor, and we've seen the high tower ships already, especially in Sam's chapter, so I would guess they'll fight it out. That maybe that's like the the end point of the High Septon's prophecy that by fighting it out against Euron, that will be the future he saw. That he saw Euron burning them instead of Aegon the Dragon. That would be interesting. I mean, Euron is definitely not a Targaryen, but who knows? Visions of the future are often uncertain. Maybe he thought it was Aegon the Dragon and instead he saw Euron. That would be a very ripple in the dreamscape kind of way of thinking about it. Certainly other people are seeing Euron across the world. Maybe they see him across time. Is there any indication to the High Towers having access to magic from Michael Hall? So Paramore the Twisted and his pets definitely were sorcerers. The Citadel was, in, was initially founded not only as a, a center of knowledge, but a center of, of magical knowledge and tutelage. It was like the first Hogwarts, I guess. So in the long past, it's definitely suggested that the High Towers have connections to magic. They studied it. They sponsored it. The inclusion of the High Tower and Brand the Builder is another way to make themselves seem magical. And their decision to live within the Battle Isle Fortress definitely leans that way. As far as the current time, Melora and Leighton have said in the in the recent years to not come down for the High Tower years at a time, and they're supposedly studying magic. And we know magic is working again in the world, or it's stronger than it was previously. So I would not rule it out that Leighton and Melora have been practicing magic in some way or are trying to. Maybe they're trying to get the help of the Maesters or something like that. I wouldn't rule it out. There's a uh, magic is working everywhere. The glass candles are burning. And if anyone's going to be on top of the fact that magic is back, you'd assume the high towers would be it. Got to head out, but thanks for doing the stream a bit later. Yep. See you later, uh, Sarah. Underkicker says, fun fact, Gerald Hightower has the most lines of any high tower in the main story thus far. I think, I think that's true. Nothing from Leighton, nothing from Liness, as far as I know. What about Mace's wife? Doesn't Mace's wife have a few lines? Maybe if you count mace's children as half high towers then they would have the most but in terms of a character that goes by the surname high tower you're probably right that gerald is bryson chung says with the citadel and the high tower the alexandria parallels are way too obvious for that city remains standing by the end yes i agree that it seems so perfectly set up for a devastating chapter where the citadel burns the libraries go up the maesters are killed, the high tower falls, Euron goes into the starry sept and declares himself like a new god or something like that. It seems so on the nose for what he wants to do. It'd be weird if he didn't. But then again, George is a, a very clever writer and he's very good at surprising us. So it feels like the most likely, but who knows? George could do something else. I was thinking about that with the dying of the light thing I'm doing. I'm on chapter 14 and I noted that George has a real talent or subversion of expectation in particular that he sets things up where you think it's going a plus b equals c but he makes it so that a plus b equals d but he does it in a way that the the equation works for both of them and then in retrospect the one he actually does had an had a hidden variable in it where it was like a plus b plus e equals d and you didn't notice e that kind of thing if that makes any sense so I guess, I guess that's my feeling on it. It feels super set up that he will burn most of Old Town and the buildings, but I wouldn't be surprised if George comes up with something 
that uses the same foreshadowing but uses it in a different way that feels just as satisfying or heartbreaking when you see it. Is the Kraken not a dragon of the deep? Kraken's an octopus, I think, a giant octopus or a squid. So I don't think it's a dragon of the sea. There are sea dragons, apparently. I have not read the Earth Sea series. So I think that's probably about where we'll we'll wrap it up for today. Do you think it would be a wink to the Tower of Babel? Yeah, probably. George I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things where there's lots of examples of like giant towers and stuff like that falling. He's not like referencing all of them. I feel like he said something about the the burning of Alexandria before, and that's why people think it is. Stick to magic and leave math alone. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just trying to explain it in a way that kind of makes sense, but I think I just made it more confusing. What's a better way to explain it? He sets up his plots in such a way that you think... You link together certain pieces of foreshadowing that leads to a particular ending, but he then has one that he's secretly been developing at the same time, and you won't realize they're connected until he actually gives his his actual conclusion to that plot line. And it's non-obvious at first, but totally obvious once you go back and see it. I think that's a better way of explaining it. Only makes sense in retrospect. It's hard to predict because he does that. Like I think the example I gave in the dying of the chapter of the light chapter 14 of dying of the light was I talked about how it's set up in the hedge night that dunk will end up fighting a prince. And uh, you think for most of the story that it's going to be Valar Targaryen because that, that's who dunk keeps thinking about. He's like, well, I'm going to try and get Valar in a duel or into a joust and then I'll try and win it. And from there I'll be able to maybe get a household guard ship somewhere or I'll get some money out of it. And from there, I can continue what I'm trying to do. And then instead, it ends up being that the prince he ends up fighting is Arian, and it ends up working back to the to the previous visions of Daron the Drunkard. And you don't realize that's what's happening. And you go back and read the visions, and all of a sudden, the entire plot was laid out in those dreams, but you didn't realize it until it happened. And it's like, oh, okay, now it makes sense. I didn't realize these things were related until the ending came about that's a long-winded saying long-winded way of saying i think old town will burn and this and the high tower will fall but i wouldn't be surprised if george finds a different way of hurting us emotionally yeah like king bran there's so many references to it in retrospect not many people went into season eight of game of thrones thinking bran would be king in the end um and i think the same is true for a song of ice and fire but you go back and look at it and it's like it's everywhere you just kind of missed it because he was he seemed to be jerking his head so hard at Jon Snow. But anyway, I think that'll probably be it for today. Oh, thank you for the $2 bog guy. Appreciate it. No message there, but appreciate it. And it's like Chekhov's gun. Small setup you didn't see coming. That's the thing. He shows you the gun on the wall. He shows you Chekhov's gun, but then it's like there's another gun behind it that you didn't realize at the time, or there's one off screen or something like that. It's a clever way of uh, surprising the audience. And he does the same thing in Dying of the Light. I have to finish editing that. I'm probably going to do that today. But anyway, I will see you guys in, let's see here. I can do it in two weeks if I do it on Friday or if I do it late on Saturday. Maybe I'll do it on Friday. I have to work that weekend. So I don't know. I don't feel like skipping weeks. I feel like with House of the Dragon coming up that I should probably not do the weird week skipping thing because I have to work. So I don't know. We'll figure it out. I would look for a stream in two weeks, time and date forthcoming. Definitely be more about the high towers and particular Otto and Allison, Aegon and the rest of the family and what they do during the Dance of the Dragons, kind of a preview for the show. And 